Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. A presentation of Ex Libris Publishing, host Steve Jorgensen connects with a writer to share the vision and inspiration behind their works. Insightful, informative, and always entertaining, please welcome host Steve Jorgensen and this week's edition of Ex Libris On Air. The title of the book, A Year in the Life of Dr. Fox, and the author is Frederick L. Malfers, and Frederick joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, Frederick. Hi, Steve. How are you doing? Great. And Fred is fine. Fred is fine. All right. Well, Fred, we appreciate you being with us. This book of the A Year in the Life of Dr. Fox deals with, as you put it, the evil influence of illegal drugs, uh, of course, the negative ad- impact on much of the United States and Mexican society because of the dominance of these drug cartels that are in the news often, and you focus on this family, the De La Vega family and their allies, they've got to do something to fight back. One of the family gets tortured and murdered, and and Eduardo De La Vega wants to meet all these challenges, and he's the hero. He's got a lot of strength and intelligence, and we're going to talk about how his bloodlines go all the way back to that fictional character, Zorro, that we all know so well from uh, latter years of but first, Fred, tell us a little bit about your background and how this book came about. Uh, okay. Uh, my background is I spent over 37 years with the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs and um, was in the, the uh, health career portion of that uh, for almost my entire career. Uh, came up through the ranks and became uh, a CEO of... Um, uh, medical centers and VA health systems called uh, networks. Uh, did some time in central office. Received a number of awards, um, but I always wanted to write. The way I did my job as a healthcare executive um, really precluded me from doing much writing, since the job was way over uh, 40 hours a week and somewhat unpredictable. So um, when I retired, I decided to take 30 days and think about what I wanted to do rather than jump back into the healthcare management field. And uh, before the end of 30 days, um, I decided I wanted to write. So I first wrote My Life in the VA, Lessons in Leadership. Then I wrote a... a, um, Para science fiction book called uh, Meanie Mouse versus the Orlando Operators. This included some of the anecdotes that um, I experienced in my long career that were not appropriate for my life in the VA. Uh, then I uh, wrote Mahaya, um, a novel, uh, The Memoirs of J.C. Mulkey, who is a family um, ancestor and my mother's family comes from that part of Texas, North Central Texas. In doing that, I decided I had to go to Mexico and do some research, and uh, so my wife and I flew to Chihuahua, and we got on the train through the Copper Canyon area, which is um, sort of like the old uh, 
TV movie Bonanza on steroids, <laughs> and um, got to El Forte in San Luis State hotel we were staying in had a courtyard and they had this life-size statue of Zorro uh, there and that got me thinking about maybe the next book should be uh, about Zorro as it turns out it wasn't the next book is uh, was Spies and Lies uh, The Paradox uh, set mostly in Washington D.C. and then um, worked on uh, a Year in the Life of Dr. Fox, and um, got that published through Ex Libris at the end of last year, and have been working hard promoting the book and marketing it uh, uh, since then. So um, I decided that I really should uh, move, since I, uh, in childhood I was just very much enamored of uh, Zorro, the one on Disney, and uh, decided that... Um, uh, I should move him back to um, uh, Mexico. That Zorro is copyrighted. And so uh, that began me thinking uh, that, you know, really sometimes fictions or folk tales are based in reality or based from reality. So in my fiction, the De La Vega family is real. Uh, because of various cultural pressures and whatnot, they moved to uh, Culiacan, Mexico, and went into business. Several generations later, we have Eduardo and his twin brother, Teodoro, uh, who decide to, uh, uh, during the uh, President Calderon's war on the drug cartels, because their sister is viciously murdered, they decided to uh, fight back against the uh, Pacific Cartel. So tell us about Eduardo. Describe him. Eduardo is about six foot two, uh, dark, handsome, athletic. Uh, he is a uh, Yale trained surgeon working in Culiacan. Uh, he um, basically uh, does good things for the community in terms of charity. Um, works hard at, at his profession and then one day uh, his sister is kidnapped and he is the one who gets called to go identify this body who the police believe is his, is his sister he does and of course he's devastated that it is his sister and um, and talking to his father and brother and uh, an adopted brother they agreed to go after the cartel the uh, the um, unfortunate thing is that uh, his sister may have been kidnapped and tortured because her husband has been uh, pulled into the machinations of the cartel when there's huge amounts of money uh, very often uh, you have huge amounts of corruption in the police and other civic officials and so on and so um, Diego who owned a hotel uh, got drawn into it and eventually he was arrested and uh, ultimately murdered in prison so suddenly Dr. Eduardo de la Vega has to adopt children his life changes uh, tremendously but in part of that loving family there's still 
the beat of um, doing the first you can for the children and each other. And uh, he does that all the while doing everything he possibly can uh, to wreak havoc on the uh, drug cartel. So we have Eduardo, his twin brother, Teodora. Teodoro? Yes. Theodoro's the priest. priest, and then his wife, uh, Eduardo's wife, uh, Lena, plays an important part in this as well. Yes, she does. She's a, an attorney, and, uh, you know, sometimes during the most desperate of times, um, romance creeps into our lives, whether we were thinking about it or wanted it or not, and that's what happens, and so they get married, they agree to adopt their children, and um, she, in many ways, is the um, intelligence behind uh, the various operations, physical operations that that um, Eduardo and his adopted brother Gaspar Flacco Salas arranged to do against uh, the Pacific Cartel, as well as help people who have become victimized either by the economy or by the cartel. President Calderon often said that when the United States gets a cold, Mexico gets pneumonia. And then, of course, we have the drug cartel and the villain, uh, Fidel. Tell us about him and his henchmen. Well, Fidel is really uh, a, uh, a based on the, the, uh, the character Chapo Guzman, who was recently captured. He was head of the... Uh, uh, Pacific Cartel, sometimes called the Sinaloa Cartel, and he survived uh, many years by being extremely cunning. Um, almost all of his henchmen are from the same area of uh, a very rural part of uh, uh, Sinaloa State, a county called Baglitoraguato, if I have that nearly right. Uh, it's a county about the size of Connecticut. Uh, that is the biggest the the, the uh, county seat, and uh, it only has about sixteen thousand people. So we're talking extremely rural, extremely uneducated. Most uh, of that county is isolated uh, if there's rain or any kind of storms like that. So he's uh, very clever and uh, operates through his uh, lieutenants, uh, which are based really all over Mexico. Many of the other cartels are are, are similarly fashioned, and uh, eventually they, uh, through bloody battles, they they agree um, on uh, uh, the main thing, which is uh, the the uh, drug routes into um, the United States. The um, the uh, Pacific Cartel operates. Its main uh, avenue into the states uh, through Calexico, uh, California, and uh, the, the sister city of uh, Mexicali in uh, in Mexico. Um, the others uh, go through Tijuana and uh, the other border cities, which is one reason most of the travel guides say if you're driving in Mexico. And even if you get real tired and don't think you can drive any faster, uh, 
or further, whatever you do, do not stop in a border town hmm. into the United States. Uh, but I've met many fine people in Mexico, and, and I think that's also the tragedy and the conflict between uh, good and evil. Um, I grew up in Miami, and I can tell you during the Colombian incursion, there were very good families whose child, uh, teenager, early 20 years old, got sucked up into the big money, fast life of uh, of uh, the Colombian drug rings, and got to spend lots of years in prison as a result. Part of this part of this plot also deals now that the sister, the daughter, of course, the De La Vega. Uh, daughter's been murdered she has children and and they could be next that's right the threat is there um and uh, because of, of her husband being involved um unknown to the uh, de la vega brothers um they come to believe that his actions really led to her her kidnapping he was in so far that uh, he got uh, arrested and um, basically got killed in prison. Uh, so that's the um, uh, what I would call the fatal flaw of this drug cartel. It's easy money, huge amounts of money, fast life, anything you want, but then you live in fear daily of getting caught or getting killed um uh, you know, the communications in a, um, a drug cartel where often the uh, head of the cartel is constantly on the move to avoid capture sometimes, uh, oftentimes, doesn't work or the communications are misinterpreted. And um, the Mexican government has been very successful at catching the, the um, heads uh, of these various cartels, uh, but you know, the, it's it's something like uh, cutting the head off a snake, I guess. The snake goes on writhing and, and attempting to do bad things. And then with each succession, uh, executive succession, if you will, um, the next person who takes over may not be as talented or as educated or be even more of a ruthless killer than the person they replaced. Um and um, although Mexico's economy has gotten better, uh, it's still a, a fact of life that um, you know drug cartels could start shooting at each other in a in a shopping center or gas station, and you or I could just be there totally innocently mm-hmm. and become victimized as as part of that. Well, it's a it's the type of story, as you put it, that the reader will really appreciate the bond between the De La, De La Vega family and their loyal to, loyalty to each other and their friends. So it really shows a lot of strength there in the face of adversity and danger. And that's the one of the, I guess, the redeeming values of this whole storyline. Right. You know, we often have problems with our families or think we've got it bad or something like that. But this shows the face uh, of the danger and the family's real strength 
and uh, and bonding uh, to resist the the efforts to uh, just go along to get along. Um, and you know, I anybody any one of us put into such a situation, I don't think we really know what we would do. But the uh, the De La Vegas, despite their great wealth and and their their and no one would criticize them if they turned their back on it. They did not, which which makes them heroes. And it points out in various anecdotes and and in various actions how the um, how good and evil um, are often not so clear, and how truth and justice uh, are are often not that. Um, clarified as we as we live in this country, we have um, trials and judges and juries, and in Mexico, in most places, they do not. the the uh, The uh, judge hears the uh, case. There there is no jury. There is no um, there are no people there just to watch the trial. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, the people and the state, I think, are going through a real learning process at the same time, evolving despite this um, um, huge uh, uh, problem on their uh, doorstep, which is the huge amounts of money in the drug cartels and smuggling drugs into this country and that sort of thing. And, and indeed, uh, you know there are huge, huge cities in Mexico that that are industrialized, that build everything, uh, cars made in this that have this country's uh, nameplate on them, and um, we do. The United States does a tremendous amount of business in Mexico, very successfully. So there's there are uh, great universities, there are um, technological institutes that are as I think as good as anything. We've got, and they do all this despite the fact that uh, it's kind of a wild, wild west scenario, mm-hmm. maybe like uh, we were in the 1850s with uh, the Indians and the gunslingers and, and all of that stuff. But uh, the difference is our wild, wild west wasn't that populated, and theirs is. So it's, uh, you know, an everyday thing that you know you should avoid this area when you go to work. You should stay out of the the bars. You should avoid uh, temptation wherever you can, and uh, that's basically how uh, people uh, live their lives. Um, and um, the Mexican Marines and Navy Army are really heavily involved in keeping these states safe from, which is a from what I would say is a crazy amount of violence against the people, farmers and stuff like that, or that are getting shaken down and have to pay to sell at a at a, a farmer's market that and that kind of thing in some places. We've been listening to Frederick L. Malfers. He is the author of his book, A Year in the Life of Dr. Fox. Fred, tell us how we can get your book. Well, it's available everywhere online, uh, Ex Libris, of course. Uh, Amazon, Books a Million, Barnes and Noble, and many other online book uh, sellers. 
Well, Fred, we appreciate you so much. Very knowledge in the obviously in the culture of Mexico in this great story, a year in the life of Dr. Fox. Thank you so much for being with us on Ex Libris On Air. My pleasure, Steve. Thank you so much. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. On the back of today's book, this thought-provoking paragraph begins like this. The leaders at Jonah believe that the answers lie in Joshua Arden, a young man with a hard life whose destiny could change the face of humanity and faith forever. The choice to accept the responsibility is his own. How will he choose? The title of today's book... Glorious Incorporated, The Joshua Chronicles, and our author, Stephen Neil Moore. Stephen, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jay. Thank you very much. This has some ominous overtones. Explain the background and tell us the inspiration behind your book titled Glorious Incorporated, The Joshua Chronicles. This idea actually came to me, I guess, about 10 or 11 years ago. Uh, my profession is I'm actually you know, a professional consultant. I've been doing the corporate thing for the better part of 20 years. And I always wanted to have some type of a book that gave a suspenseful meaning to not necessarily the corporate setting, but how corporations can be used to actually promote the power of good. So the first idea I had, I guess, about, you know, when I was thinking about the concept of this 10 years ago was, how, what would it be like if a supernatural force were actually running um, a corporation on this planet? Well, that didn't really pan out for me very well because I didn't know really where to take it uh, at that time. And I thought, well, what about the influences on humanity? So then we kind of got into some religious overtones, you know, that kind of crossed over with the supernatural just a little bit. So I thought, okay, let's try to simplify this. There's a guy that just wants to make it through life, had a really hard life, he wants to get a job in a corporate setting, and then he finds out something powerful is going on with this corporation. And then he kind of gets caught in the middle of a war between good and evil. He never chose this life. He never wanted this life. So he's got these two corporations vying for him, and then he just kind of works his way through different scenarios. And ultimately, you know, he finds out that he's been chosen for something that he never knew existed. 
And that's basically how the story unfolded. Once I came up with that plot line, it just it kind of evolved from that point forward. My presumption, this will also be, because it says the Joshua Chronicles, that this may end up being a series of novels based on this initial premise. It is. It is, actually. I'm uh, currently getting ready to release a story arc that's going to begin the second part of the trilogy. So um, the first part was actually setting the stage for Joshua and showing his basic you know, rise to power you know, and our influences that he has you know, on the human you know, I guess uh, the human condition about making the world a better place, you know, all of those fluffy catchphrases, you know, where people say they just want to do good. Well, now you've got this man who's got absolutely no interest in power, money, or wealth, and he's got all of this backing by this corporation where he can actually make that type of a difference. So what's this man going to do with it? Intriguing plot line. Yeah, this is the first part of the book, and the second part is, you know, it gets kind of, a little bit hairy in the second trilogy uh, it's going to be more on a global scale it's going to involve a little bit of, you know politics it's going to uh, involve some more uh, religious artifacts and overtones you know that's going to set the stage for how people believe um, but it's not it's not preachy it's not a religious book and that's something I want to get across you know to a lot of the readers and so far so far a lot of the favorable reviews that I've had have been you know very very um, very very positive um, it's very easy to read. I don't use a lot of big words because I'm not a big word guy. I do enough of that in my normal life. So I wanted to make it something that was catchy, something that could be readable, and something that kind of you know, brings the reader in during the first few pages and leads them from chapter to chapter. Great so, idea. This is a 402 pages for a first book effort. A remarkable number of pages, and the plot line sounds intriguing. How did you get interested in writing? You've been wanting to write for a long time, from my understanding. Who were the authors that influenced you the most? You know, you're going to hear standard comments from a lot of different people, you know, regarding the same authors like Tom Clancy. Um, Believe it or not, Victor Hugo for Les Miserables. I mean, his, you know, he had volumes and volumes of that particular book, but there were elements in it, if you condensed it down, that were very intriguing. Hmm. And it was more about the plot line. So he had it small influence on me. The idea for the trilogy and stuff, um, believe it or not, I got from Stephanie Meyer. Um, I reviewed some of her material, and although I may not you know, agree with some of the storylines and stuff that she has, I was very, very pleased with how she led all of her books into something consecutive that built out one big long story and broke it up into certain books. So that, that was the focus of what I wanted to do and the influence of the authors that you know, they actually had on me. Grisham, he, he was out there in some of the stuff I read. Uh, Tim LaFay, Jerry B. Jenkins from the Left Behind series, those type of things. Mostly you know, people that tell good stories that have really rich characters, and a lot of their storylines are very tight. It was, it was well thought out before they started writing. Those are the type of things that I... I geared myself towards. Now, for our listeners, you mentioned they're well thought out. Did, do you work from an outline? Do you work from inspiration? How do you construct, or how did you construct Glorious Incorporated? Um, I actually used my professional background as a consultant. I built out a storyboard. I knew there was a thematic element of what I wanted to convey in this first book. You know, there's always a climax of what you want to reach. And from that point, I just kind of branched out. Um, I stood in my home office, I have a whiteboard, I got some post-its, and I wrote down specific things I wanted to write about, and then I just kind of arranged them into a story flow. 
And from that point, you know, I created index cards, and then it started with 30 index cards, and then it blew out to about 200. Uh, some were chapter-specific, some were specific sections within that chapter. And as I started piecing things together, I started writing. And it just kind of flowed after that. Uh, the book actually was around 550 pages, and then as I was doing the editing process, I pulled out the elements that really didn't you know, lend itself to the true storyline. Best writing was actually pulled out. It was kind of disappointing, but it didn't make the story flow. So, Would you call this, did I correctly describe it as an action thriller? Yes, yes. I, it's been classified um, more so on the thriller, the thriller suspense side. There's a lot of action in it, um, but to get to the action, you basically have to lay the, fa- the foundation. Everybody's got to understand the characters, the backgrounds, where they come from and then what their motivation is. But the action starts out, you know, in the first chapter. And who do you so, think is going to enjoy reading this book? Most of the people that have an emotional connection um, to elements where they like stories that make them think. This is not a short story by any means. It's, it's actually the first part of, like I said, a trilogy that I have planned, but I wrap up things very nicely in this first book. There's not going to be any questions that are left unanswered unless they're leading into the next book. So people that like to experience, you know, like you said, some action, uh, a little bit of thrill, some suspense, suspense. There's a little bit of a love interest in there for our um, protagonist. Uh, I make you hate our primary uh, antagonist. And, you know, everybody wants to see him get what he deserves in the end. He may get it. He may not. It depends, you know, on how I actually want that to flow into the next book. It's more built like the old uh, Kiefer Sutherland 24 series. You have to pretty much read each chapter in order for it to make sense as you go forward. No sense jumping around. some questions and it leads into the next. Right. Is there anything in this book that, besides the entertainment value, that you want as a message the reader to take away from this read? The power of choice. That was the first and foremost thing that started this whole development. Uh, if people think about everything that we do in our day-to-day lives, everything is based on decisions that we make. Uh, for instance, would be whether or not you decide to have breakfast at home versus trying to get something on the road. If you have breakfast at home, it may cause you to be late for work, and that may set the tone for the rest of your day. If you decide you want to make work in time, you may decide to get something while you're out. While you're getting something and while you're out, um, it may cost you some money, money you didn't have. Or you may be able to avoid an accident, you know, if you go to a certain restaurant that has your favorite coffee. I mean, everything basically leads to a different threat of reality, and it all comes down to an individual's choice. So that is the basic foundation of what this main character does throughout all of this book. He doesn't second-guess everything that he's done in his life, but he starts to realize that since he's been chosen for a specific objective, his choices are not only going to impact his life, but it impacts those around him. And it changes, basically, the threat of their reality. And it molds and shapes, you know, the future events that keep happening. You mentioned this being a corporate story on many levels. Is there anything in your story that addresses the quandary of most businesses, that the ends justify the means? There is to a degree. One of the, you know, there's always good and bad in the book. You always have to have a hero and you always have to have a villain. So if we look at one of the corporations in the book, because you've got a bad corporation and a good corporation vying for this particular individual for their own reasons. As this individual progresses forward, one of the corporations that's really bad, that wants to go after this individual, is solely based on money. 
the ends for what they want to actually gain have to do with whether this individual is going to do exactly what they want. And it's all about corporate gain. They're all into mergers and acquisitions. I try not to get into much business ease, although I have been told that there's a lot of business references. You know, after 20 years doing it myself, it's kind of hard to pull that stuff out as I'm writing. But there is a sole purpose and a sole focus of the bad corporation solely wanting to, to do everything that they're doing for profit, whereas the good corporation is all about helping out mankind, and it's using its corporate presence and marketplace to actually benefit humanity, provide relief, provide donations, do charitable work, those type of things. It's not all about making money for them. And that's, you know, something that you don't see too often with a lot of companies. You see a lot of philanthropy. You see a lot of entrepreneurship. But then you see these companies, you know, that implode on themselves because they've done things the wrong way. Uh, they've scammed people. They've gone belly up because, you know, someone ran off with money from a company and they kind of messed people out of their retirement. I try to focus on certain elements like that, but more so the effect that it has on the people who are involved. They can't do anything about it. The whole idea about the hero is he's the voice for those people because that is the environment he came from. He came from nothing. He lost everything growing up, and now he has the ability to make a difference, and he has a corporation that's going to give him unlimited background and backing at his disposal. Now, Joshua Arden is your main and primary character. Are there other key characters that will carry forward into your next of the series? Yes, there's a, a few characters um, in the corporation Josh works for, like uh, Langston Campbell. Um, he's one of Josh's right-hand man, right-hand men when he comes up. Um, there's actually an antagonist that works for the horrible company, the enemy in this book, that uh, ultimately decides whether or not he should make the choice to continue to work for them or decide to work for Josh. Um, he has a love interest, uh, the first lady that took him to his interviews, Melina. So we see her evolve a little bit more inside uh, the next part of the series. Uh, and obviously, you know, the, the supernatural element. There's a, there's a few characters out there that nobody really understands what their origins are, but they understand the motivation of what they're trying to do, both on the good side and the bad side. And those kind of carry over, too. So we've got about four or five main characters that will probably have more prominence in the next series. But... Instead of this just being between two corporations, which this first book is, uh, the trilogy is going to lead in more to more of a global direction of where it just it affects every facet, not just corporate entities, but you know political schemes, environments, those type of things. And it just it, it builds on that. In writing Glorious Incorporated, is there a particular scene that really is the capstone or sets the tone for your series? Um. I don't know how I can say this without giving too much away, but there is a lot of emotional ups and downs for the main hero in the book. And he loses some people that are very close to him because he really doesn't have much to hang on to. So as he evolves throughout this book, he's an intrepid college graduate. He gets a big city job you know, out of New York City, and he just wants to do his job. Well, then he knows that something funky is kind of happening, and he progresses really fast. And then he starts to make really good decisions. And then a tragedy strikes him when he's on one of his particular jobs, missions, with someone that he became very close with. And from that point forward, he wanted to find out answers. 
so then the next few chapters lead into you know him discovering those answers that changes everything for him is when someone very close to him meets with another tragedy and he doesn't have many people left in his life and he's decided that's it I'm done I've had enough so then from that point forward he decides to embrace his destiny he decides to use the corporation who has offered their backing for him and whatever needs he feels to complete the mission and to make sure that good basically triumphs over evil. Sounds like a so, fascinating read. Were there challenges in completing Glorious Incorporated? From a normal perspective, uh, yes. Um, you know, I'm, I don't, I'm not independently wealthy, so I have a normal job just like everybody else. Um, Finding the time to actually write, I mean, because this, this novel probably took a little over 16 to 18 months to complete. Um, so keeping a normal corporate job, you know, raising a family with three children under the age of eight, uh, most of it was about timing for me to complete. As far as some of the stuff that I've talked to other writers about, story block, I don't really know where to take the direction of this next chapter or what I'm going to do with this character. Um, because I had spent some time up front, you know, investing in the storyline itself, I basically created the entire story on these index cards. I just, when I wrote, I had to fill in those index cards to actually make up the sections and the chapters. So for me, it was more so about finding the time to actually get it done. I had a deadline set for myself, and I almost made it, and then I finally got that completed. So that was basically my only challenge, just the timing in itself, making sure that when the inspiration hit me, I had something with me so I could at least jot down the notes, being a busy professional, you know, just like everyone else who's, who's trying to get into the business, um, you can't really force inspiration. If you have a good idea about a storyline or you've gotten hung up on something and you haven't written anything in like three or four days, and then it hits you like at 3.30 in the morning, you've got to have that pen and paper right next to your bed so you can at least write down the note, and then the next day, you know, build the bridge. I learned a lot of different things as I was writing this. I mean, I lost some really good ideas because I didn't have any of that information or didn't think about, you know, writing the idea down. But I've learned a lot in the last three years. You've done a wonderful job. The story is Glorious Incorporated, the Joshua Chronicles. Where can our listeners get copies of your book? Um, it is available all over Amazon. Um, you can get uh, a Kindle copy. Uh, it's priced really reasonable right now. Also, uh, print-on-demand for paperback as well as hardback directly from Amazon. Uh, it's available on Barnes & Noble. Uh, I just uh, set a deal with a narrator, so the audio version of this should be out around Thanksgiving 2014. I'm looking forward to that. And uh, the story arc for the next one in the series should be available on Amazon within the next uh, six to eight weeks. So I expect to have it out uh, no later than uh, beginning of May 2014. Fabulous. And you do have a website as well, or one that's under development. I do. www.stephennealmore.com. Thank you, Stephen, for joining us today. And we uh, hope to talk with you in the future about the next in the series. This one, Glorious Incorporated, The Joshua Chronicles. Our author, Stephen Neal Moore. Thank you for joining me today, sir. Thank you, Jay. I appreciate it. For Ex Libris On Air, this is Jay Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu, Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. 
Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled, It's Okay, Everybody's Different. And our author is Paula E. Gelbach. Paula, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Your book is charming and beautifully illustrated. Great stories. I would say that this probably is designed for children's read. What was your motivation in putting this book together? My motivation was in trying to get the word out to reach children uh, at the very youngest, because that's when it's important to start, about liking one another, liking one another's differences, realizing we all have differences, and establishing the groundwork for acceptance of one another so that as they get older, um, the bullying might be greatly reduced oh, great. and dislike of one another. Would you call this also a celebration of differences? Definitely, definitely. I don't think we often think that being different is uh, always such a good thing. But in um, in the one, uh, they have a good time with it. In the first uh, poem uh, that's called The Purple Bottomus, he has a purple bottomus, and he's so happy and proud of it, but no one else does. But they have something else that they're just as proud of, and they end up all enjoying one another and appreciating one another's differences. And it's done in a first-grade way, <laughs> or a second-grade way, that they can enjoy it. And actually, younger people can be read to, and it's a, it's a picture book, and Purple Hippopotamus is really exciting. He, he's really kind of handsome, so... He, he's the main... So, is that your main character, the Purple Hippopotamus? The, in, there are three stories in It's Okay, Everybody's Different. Good. And the three stories are just different stories. They're not hooked together in any way, with the exception of the theme. And so in the first one, yes, my grandson, at the time he was four, my youngest grandson, whispered, Grandma, do you know, have you heard of the hippopotamus with the purple bottomus? Well, it cracked me up at the time. I didn't ever come out with anything like that. And I started to think about that. And I remember in my teaching career how children were different. And it just sort of clicked with me. So I took off on that. That was the key to the beginnings of, of, the, of the story and of the book. 
And you used animals, which are charming to look at. You've done a done a great job in steering the uh, the illustrator to do a, a fabulous job. Why did you yes. use Why did you yes. use animals instead of children as characters in your well, book? Well, it's much easier to get across a difficult, could be difficult uh, topic or a pointed topic or something with animals because you don't children don't personalize animals that they are them, you know. And so um, it, it just seemed the, the natural thing to do. And all of my stories uh, in my books are all animals. And I think that is important. And it took me quite a while to find um, In fact, that was a big holdup. The book was really put together a couple of years before it was uh, submitted to Ex Libris um, because of the, looking for the um, illustrator. Uh, that that could do the kind of picture that I sort of envisioned would go well with the uh, text. You mentioned bullying as a, a topic. Did you touch on that specifically in your book? Yes, I did, but a very gently inter- a gentle, uh, introduction to this one. The first story is a, a poem about the hippopotamus with the purple bottomus, and the second one is about a... Um, a wasp, actually, who has a friend, the ladybug, and his mother. But he has a group who suddenly just start to pick on him, and he doesn't know how to handle this. And it's very upsetting because his friends are all in the group. But he goes, the main, the main theme on this one is to have children understand that it's okay to go and talk this over with your mother and make sure that she knows what's going on and take her advice and um, or tell a grown-up, uh, even a teacher or someone that the child feels comfortable with. And, of course, this little bug has another little bug, the ladybug, <laughs> who is his best friend, who instills in him his worth, tells him that, well, they might not like you and they might be picking on you, but you are so important to me and to other people because of your kindness and your caring and all that and those things uh mean a whole lot so don't ever lose those you know so we've we've supplanted the uh, bad with some good fabulous <laughs> uh, ideas that uh, so it begins that way um and that's about the substance of of that one um that that kind of um, differences the difference between the bully and and uh and mother's approach and the wasp and all that business. When they're reading this book and, and when others are, are viewing it, I'm sure that you have an underlying theme and maybe many underlying themes. Do you reinforce those in the uh, in the teaching process of writing this and telling the story? Yes, definitely. Well, when you say teaching, I'll, I'll start with the third. The third story is about the differences in teaching. Um, I was taught as a youngster um, to be fearful of uh, the art lessons that my teacher presented. She was the type that had to be exactly the way she wanted it, not the way we could produce it, hmm. the way she wanted it. But I learned that, that if I ever became a teacher, and this was like in first grade, I was going to make sure that anybody who worked hard, work was accepted. And, um, uh, and so... That involved that came very heavily to play in my own teaching, to accept what children do 
and there's always a way to to praise it and to be thankful for it and admire it, you know, but somebody else might not think so, but that's okay. That's different. They do something different, but this is valuable too. And um, so I did use it in my teaching, even before the book. I'm a retired teacher now, but I never forgot that, and it was so important that it just stuck, you know, stuck with me. And uh, I'm trying to... Uh, I'm, I am not just trying. I'm writing a second book that is not, is a companion. It's not a serial or a, a book group. It, it does have animals, but different animals. There are some similarities, like the three stories in it. But the um, this carries the theme of bullying a little further, so that older children, well, not that much older, another grade, might <clears throat> grasp it. Uh, I might enjoy it a little, maybe a little bit more uh, by grasping it more um, when uh, certain uh, bullying scene, bullying action takes place and how that is handled and how the different animals realize. That book is called, it isn't out yet, but it's called, it's with the sleepers, so it'll be coming out. Let Your Light Shine, and it's okay, let your light shine. They both start with it's okay. Beautiful. And, um, and, and if we let your light shine, that means that you are doing good things, and hugs are good things, and they turn around bullying like you'd never believe. Fabulous. <laughs> Fabulous. Well, those are important stories and, and important values that need to be instilled in small children, and hopefully it'll carry right. through to their adulthood, and they'll also retain those values and that value system. Who do you think is going to enjoy reading your book? I know it's directed towards children, but I, I have a sneaky suspicion teachers and maybe adults might enjoy sharing this. Oh, I do think so. I think, it, yes, I think it's fun for uh, adults who like, like the stories. And I think they have a good feeling and teachers in that it's telling something that they believe in, too, and that they want to get across. It's another means. There are many means to get to an end, and this is one one method that by reading the story and maybe even having a, oh, the adults would call it a seminar or something. We call it Bible school or a series of, and then make bulletin boards. That's what the, uh, there is a workbook for the for the first book that's finished. And it, uh, it gives ideas for discussion for mothers at home if they're reading to their children before they go to sleep uh, or whenever, as well as teachers in the classroom, activities, I mean, artwork as well as discussion questions, as well as making puppet shows. You know, animals make wonderful puppet shows. Absolutely. And, um, all kinds of activities. And that that workbook is on, um, it can be found on the United Church of Christ Resources um, website. Excellent. They, they specifically asked me for that. I didn't uh, put that out in necessarily. I did it independently with my sister. There are two names on that. Beautiful. She's also a teacher. But um, but anyway, I just sort of mentioned that that's a and that I don't know is uh, you go look it up on the um, United Church of Christ uh, website and for for resources. They have a lot of different things and read about it and how it's put together and how it might help 
You don't even have to have a lot of them because, well, you can because they're not that expensive, but you just have one and copy pages out for your classes. Well, you, you've mentioned this, uh, you've mentioned a, a church entity. Is this a story that possibly could be used in Sunday school lessons or Bible school themes? Definitely. The one that you read does not mention school, uh, Bible school or any church or any denomination or anything. But I, it, is such, it is written in such a way that it can be used that way by the teacher in the picking it up from some, you know, using it in their own Bible school or Sunday school. And all you need to do is add the belief system that you, um, it fits. I mean, it just fits. So your book is motivational in addition to being inspirational. Right, exactly. How would you introduce this book to someone that doesn't know you or know of your, your history but might be a good suspect in reading your book? Oh, my that's that's a learning experience in and of itself, you know. Just because you feel you can write good books doesn't necessarily you're a good introducer. But I've learned that if you're passionate about what you do, it sort of just comes. I would say that uh, in this day and age, with so much conflict and all, we need to start with, with children who are as young as possible can understand things that way. And the earlier we can get to children to accept people and like people, the less bullying, maybe the you know the less war we'll have. Who knows? I like to you know think way beyond things. Eventually, not in my time or your time, maybe, but it's a start and it's an exciting one and it's a fun read and children will like it. And in different grades, in the beginning, kindergarten, first or second, they'll get different things out of it. The older they are, the more they can discuss. Uh, the acceptance of the differences and what they contribute to uh, the process of the world and getting along. This is a fun-looking book. Uh, the illustrations are spectacular and the stories and the verses are wonderful. The title of the book is It's Okay, Everybody's Different. Uh, was there anything challenging about putting your book together? Yes. Finding the illustrator that I felt carried out the theme I wanted to have carried out. And I asked everybody and their kissing cousin if they knew of a good illustrator. And for about two years, I, you know, followed up all kinds of leads. And a lot of them, of course, were too busy. And a lot of them were uh, out of my price range and so forth. But I, by just by accident, um, one of my college classmates, two of them, and myself were having lunch one day, just about a year ago now, and um, I asked them, and the one gal went to church with a, with this artist, and she said, I wonder if she'll do it. Do call her. And so I did and sent her a copy of the book, and she also has different, she explained it, diff- 10 different grandchildren, and um, it, the theme stuck with her. Beautiful. Uh, her differences were more like um, autism, and uh, well, and she found that she had twins, and she had uh, Down syndrome, and you know, different things like that. Right. And uh, getting along that way, and ex- one child, one grandchild accepting another grandchild's uh, inability to do certain things or, or what, was very important to her, and uh, she too is very active in the 
it was very it was it was a godsend it really well, was beautiful. after all i was about giving up but i think she portrays that somehow her uh, illustrations are uh, yeah, her illustrations are are not only uh, nicely detailed, but they they have that whimsical value that maybe a child might have had his hand in crafting the artwork. Paula, is there anything relating to the last segment of your book about teacher Katie that had a lasting impression on your choices and your style of teaching when you became an educator? My teacher, when I was in the first grade who terrorized me. The last session of the day was art. We all sat around a table, and she put up something like a jar of pussy willows or something in the middle of the table, and we all had to draw it, and had to look just like the pussy willows. So I learned at an early age, and I couldn't draw those pussy willows, mm-hmm. look like pussy willows or anything. <laughs> and I was the last one to leave most days. Wow. I mean, she didn't have pussy willows every day, and some things I could draw better than others, so I got home a little bit. Not too late. <laughs> Mother yes. was worried, and I was coming down the street crying. But in that day, parents didn't go to school and talk to the teachers like they do today. I don't think that would repeat. First of all, I don't think teachers would do that so much today. That was before all this wonderful teacher education and good teachers that we have. Um, but that was long ago. But I, but it made me, I think, a better teacher. In, in reverse, because I was aware that not everybody can do what the teacher <laughs> puts forth or can, does not learn in the same way. Mm-hmm. Some learn through hearing and better the lesson heard or, re- or read or read to them. That's a hearing thing. And so that bordered on that, and I think helped me. Is that the question you asked me, or am I off the track? Yes. Yes. Well, I, uh, I it, it helped me in my own teaching. Beautiful. So Katie um, became me as a as a the polar bear teacher. Fabulous. And then, so that's that's a kind of autobiographical a little bit. Well, thank you, thank you for sharing that background uh, story. Uh, the title of this book is "It's Okay, Everybody's Different," and our author Paula E. Gelbach. Paula, where can we get copies of your book? Um, Ex Libris is the publisher, and they have um, uh, Barnes and Noble has uh, it available on uh, as an ebook, and uh, of course at Amazon they have it. And uh, you can always call Ex Libris, um, and they would send you where you needed to go. And they can keep in contact with you on. Do you personally? You personally have a website, don't you? Yes, I do. I just, thank you for mentioning that. So that that's uh, and, that's a good thing. And where where is your website? What is the address for that? I I don't have it in front of me. I'm sorry. That's okay. I think I believe I've located it. It's paulagelbach dot com. That's spelled G E L B A C H. Thank you. I'm sorry. Not a problem. You can tell I'm older. This this uh, internet stuff doesn't come first. Oh, what's on internet? <laughs> I don't know. It sounds like something to keep your hair in place. Okay. <laughs> That's okay, Paula. You've done a wonderful job, and thank you for joining me today. I thank you very much for giving me the opportunity. All right. For Ex Libris On Air, this is Jay Douglas Barker. Join Steve Jorgensen next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors. Right here 
on Ex Libris On Air.